Hi, James. Ben, how are you? I'm good. Uh, you you declined to open the podcast. I was just sitting here in silence waiting for you. Uh, no, that was that. I think that might have been a one time thing, or at at the very least, folks might have to wait for another hundred episodes or ninety nine episodes now before that uh, that event recurs. I'm afraid. Look at you! Look at, look at you doing math on the fly. I, I know. Well, given I just flew fourteen hours across the Pacific Ocean, actually that mu- that much math on the fly, I'm impressed I can do. So, so in the opposite of like drinking coffee and waking up in the middle of the podcast, you might fall asleep in the middle of the podcast. Yeah, if you hear a, if you hear a clunk and then snoring, that's that's not someone in sitting in the back. That's, that's not of your co- that's not commentary on my on my <laughs> rambling. Not a. It's more likely to be commentary on mine, but no, it's not commentary on your rambling. Not at all. All right, well, we are sponsored, as we are uh, every episode, by Mailchimp. Mailchimp offers automation. You can let your marketing get back to work. With MailChimp, you get enterprise-level automation without any of the headaches. You can send an onboarding message to introduce new subscribers to your business or organization. You can automatically follow up with customers after a purchase and recommend other products that they'll love. Surprise your best customers with a coupon triggered by their shopping behavior. Remind customers of the products they left in their cart and encourage them to, to complete their transaction. Re-engage inactive subscribers. There's all sorts of interesting tools you can do with MailChimp for your business. I am a MailChimp customer uh, at Strategy. That's why I'm happy to have them as a sponsor for this podcast and our thanks to them for sponsoring exponents yeah it's a um useful uh feature if you are on a flight across the pacific ocean and want to get in touch with your customers you don't have to do a thing they do it all for you oh there you go look man you are you know maybe you should take a 14-hour flight for every podcast (laughs) you are sharp today let's see if that continues (laughs) So this week I wrote about a topic that we discussed uh, kind of – we've discussed in, in, in parts and pieces, which is brought the headline, the headline of this piece this week, The Great Unbundling, was in reference to TV. But this was a bit of a admittedly sort of sprawling article that touched on a whole bunch of different things. And I think one of my overarching – questions that I thought a lot about. And I, I kind of wrote a piece about this a few years ago that has always has it never been quite satisfactory to me, frankly. And and I kind of visited again today, which is this idea that the internet is affecting everything is obviously a, a, a general theme for us. And the idea that the internet sort of affected media, um, it, that's been the most immediate effect of the internet, both in terms because media is just easily digitized and and just the economics of media have always been sort of internet-like where you kind of put in work up front and then you kind of reproduce it as many times as you can in the back end. Like that idea of being much more weighted towards fixed costs versus marginal costs. Mm. The the internet kind of does that. It does that on steroids, right? It basically took a lot of media business models and did it a million times better, which meant, meant those business models fell apart. But if you kind of get into the specifics of media, like text versus music versus mm. video, for example, it's interesting to wonder why is it that things have played out differently in different formats. And so that that was kind of the overarching sort of place where I started here. And while I ended up spending concluding in TV, I think that 
sort of point is is an interesting one for for a few different reasons. Well, I think the question of why is the internet affected different kinds of media differently? Uh, that's such a fascinating question and it's it it's also I think one worth diving into. I mean, you think about last week and we talked about the iPhone and then lessons that potentially could have been learned from the PC era and how people drew the wrong conclusions around what was going to happen with the phone ecosystem by looking purely at um, what happened in PCs with Windows versus the Mac, for example, people who were working inside of the media industry could see this coming. The first wave hit the text-based industries, and then it hit music, and then finally it's kind of hit video. And people knew it was coming, and they weren't sure whether the effect was going to be the same as what had to them as what had happened in the previous wave. And digging into this and why they're different it is super helpful and super instructive for folks when uh, thinking about how, when these paradigm shifts take place, how the impact is going to be felt in their own industry, like isolating what the most important mechanisms are. So I, I really enjoyed reading through this. It was, it was a really well-written and interesting article. Well, I think the, the most obvious difference is a very sort of like banal but obvious one, which is uh, file size, right? Mm. You, like text is is like literally you you bytes are like measuring te- like one character is like one one byte right mm-hmm. so it's even an article your typical text based article was very small it worked over modems like our old you know beeping blah, 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 whatever um, <laughs> whereas music you went from a few hundred kilobytes I, I mean web pages are much larger now but especially back in the day it was basically just text uh, a, a music file was you know the super compressed you know. 128 you know files mp3s that we you know we illegally traded in college those were what four or five megabytes Mm -hmm. so which was a burden on uh, if you had a modem like it it took a long time to download and then we all you know those of us in our generation all went to university and got on the 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 networks there and then went crazy i know that was (laughs) mind-blowing i went from the modem to like a hundred megabit internet connection it was oh my god i cannot go back yeah, it, it, no, and, and the whole yeah, and you everyone went through that phase. I'm sure even our generation can recognize this. I mean, the I think we've joked about this before. I, there was I know a lot of people got MP3 files through through Usenet. I was on the like FTP thing where you would, there was these sites that listed people's like people would post their servers uh-huh. address and you'd put it in your FTP client and you could browse through the library, dial what you want. I mean, it's totally insane now when you think about it. Uh, but then Napster, I mean, Napster came Napster. out when I was a sophomore. Oh my god. Yeah, so I was the first one to get it, and, I, and it like it spread like it went from like zero percent penetration in my dorm to like a hundred percent penetration in like two hours. <laughs> like, <laughs> but but even then, even when you're on the university network, like downloading video was still a bit of a burden, mm-hmm. right? And it, it was there wasn't that many available, and it, it increased more and more a bit, uh, especially you know things like BitTorrent and stuff like that. But even that was harder for the general population. It wasn't super accessible. It sounds trivial, but I th- I think it's an important thing worth considering that the file size meant some media went first and some went later, which is not just some 
important in terms of timing. What's important in terms of certain industries could see what had happened and had more time to react or not. Right, and they they absolutely did. But even even though the file, I mean, and th- that's a point that's worth making because even though the file size meant that there was a, a linearity in terms of the effects to different industries, the way this has played out in different industries has been very very different. Um, I, I'd say the starting point uh, is obviously text, and text has um, the text-based media industries probably copped it the hardest, and they've probably recovered the least. Right, because the there's actually lots of implications to that being a small file size. It's not just that it was easy to transfer, but it, if you kind of back up, it's also easy to create. Right, mm. it, like anyone can create a a text document. Uh, it, it's relatively easy to get online. Like so, all the newspapers in the world could be online, and you get all these blogs and, and message boards and forums and all those things. So all the things we've talked about extensively about what kill newspapers and, and media, like all this, it, it, there's a certain degree. Agree. There was no friction anywhere. Like the internet in general is about the elimination of friction. But if you think about all parts of the sort of like all parts of the stack or the or the workflow for text, there was really no friction anywhere. It's easy to create. It's easy to host. It's easy to download, and it's easy to 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 share. Like and so everything about it, that's been the extreme as far as like demonstrating what the internet can do. And if if you go back and you think about sort of text-based business models pre-internet, we've as we've talked about, it was really about geography and, and owning distribution. It was a very sort of simple lock-in, if that makes sense. Like it was you own distribution and so you could bundle together editorial and ads. And once there was only one lever there or sort of one layer of stickiness. So once that layer of stickiness was removed, it just fell apart immediately because there was really nothing else holding it together. Yeah, it, it reminds me a lot about your point last week of one of the things about the smartphone doing is abstracting away the importance of geography. And these were these were very effective local localized geographic monopolies that the internet just went away because all of a sudden you didn't need to read your local newspaper. You could get access to the news that was happening locally, but also the best international and national coverage from the best newspaper anywhere else in the world. And it was just as easy to get to as reading your own local local paper. And at that point, suddenly the, the value to, well, you lose the eyeballs and then the advertisers become less interested in going to your uh, advertising on your product because you have less of the people that they're looking for. And uh, yeah, it, it, the the one layer of stickiness, as you described, starts starts falling apart, right? Right. Well, because the newspaper was a bundle, right? It had mm. the sports section. It had the comics. It had the news. It had local. The issue, though, is that bundle was a bundle of convenience, like that bundle only existed that that bun, the fact that that bundle existed was itself dependent on that sort of geographic mm. lock in so once you got to the internet and you could get your international news from one place your sports news from a different place your entertainment from from another like there was nothing about that bundle there's nothing about that bundle that was inherently stuck together 
And as a contrast, take the music industry, where the music industry also had a distribution lock-in, and this distribution lock-in was not just you know creating re- you know records or tapes or, or CDs or whatever it might be and printing them and distributing them in the stores, although that was certainly part of it. It was also on the marketing side, like really controlling access to radio stations and and getting stuff played on air. It, like all all those were were distribution related, but also they they had a sort of inherent bundle themselves, which was sort of old songs, the, the music catalog, and then new songs. And of course, people want new songs, but people also really, really want sort of the old catalog. And if you think about the nature of the media, of this media, whereas like newspapers and magazines were every day or every week, and the back catalog wasn't really worth anything. Mm. Whereas with music, people listen to the same songs again and again and again. And even new artists only come out with a new album, you know, once a year is like a crazy aggressive pace. It might be once every few years or whatever it might be. And so the there was more sort of inherent stickiness in that old catalog, and it, it let them sort of put those two together. Like, if you want one, you have to get the other. And the point is, that was a an advantage for the record companies that existed outside of owning distribution. And I think that's really important because once distribution went away, newspapers had nothing. That was the only sort of lock-in they had. Mm-hmm. Whereas labels, labels certainly were hurt badly by the internet. We can talk about that a little bit. But they have... They have survived much to a much more, you know, much more successfully than your most text-based publications. In part because they had market advantages that went beyond stuff that was impacted by the internet. Right, like this notion of being able to the the your content, the 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 historical value of your content being high ended up being uh, it ended up. Being it cut both ways, right? It cut particularly badly at the start because think about it: if you're a consumer and you want something, an old song or something, it actually is uh, the the internet as a distribution mechanism versus a record store. The internet's phenomenal for that because you can search and find this obscure old old song. Uh, if your re- record store doesn't have the CD you're looking for in stock, well, easy, just go on the internet. It's always in stock, and the 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 because they were slow to embrace online piracy they just left the door wide open for piracy now i think well I, they got hurt dramatically at the start as a result of that but because because of that content uh still had value and once they got they were dragged kicking and screaming into the 21st century and started figuring out how to monetize it with a little bit of help from apple and subsequently spotify it's actually put them in much better stead than than the written word in terms of media industry uh, a media industry that's doing well right and I, you know in arguably the labels are in the you know sort of from a potential going forward position are arguably in better shape than almost anyone mm. in media if, if you think about it set aside that sort of middle period which I think we've talked about several times I don't think we have to you know reach out about piracy obviously put tremendous pressure on their business model Apple came along and offered something that was better than piracy it was still way worse than their own model because they they broke up the the album like the album was like the old newspaper right it had all the sections together and to get one section you had to buy all the sections mm-hmm. that was like an album right if you wanted one song you had to buy the whole thing and you know, Apple broke that up with iTunes, but they did that because, and this is the part we've talked about, Apple always forgets. Apple was so successful 
as a sort of monopsonic player Mm. where they, you know, they exerted power over their suppliers because they had piracy on their side, right? Right. Piracy was was like the bad cop to the iTunes store good cop when it came to to, to the industry. But in the long run, you look at the world today, they've sort of re- they sort of have a new bundle, which is the which is spot which is Spotify, and or Apple or Apple Music, which is streaming, and you're getting all the benefits of sort of you know bundle economics. So bundle economics are are super more to understand. There is a killer like I just keep quoting it. I, I keep wanting to rewrite like my version of why bundle economics is important to understand. But this post by Chris Dixon is so good that mm. I just had realize I'm rewriting it every time. So I just end up quoting and linking to it, which I did this <laughs> week again, but we'll put it in the show notes. You should, you should check it out. But basically the, the critical thing about bundle economics is that uh, different people have different preferences, right? And if you are selling a la carte, if you're selling a single item, the, the optimal price to set that item at is usually near what your best customers are willing to pay because they will, they will pay a lot. So if you have someone who's willing to pay $10, for an item, and another person is willing to pay three. Like you don't want to price it at 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 two dollars. Yes, you'll have more customers. You'll have more units sold, but your 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 profit's going to be much less because you're going to your your revenue is going to be four dollars, right? Because you said two dollars or one, two dollars the other. You're better off selling it for nine dollars because then you can get you, you'll get much more money. That's why bundling is so powerful. Because if you bundle, if you say, oh, you can get because say that other customer who was willing to pay three dollars, maybe they have something else they're willing to pay ten dollars for, and, and and the first person will pay three dollars for it, and so you can bundle those together. So the the worth of both of them together, the value of both of them together is thirteen dollars, right? So say you sell that for, say you sell both of them for twelve dollars, or whatever it might be. Now you've sold twelve dollars to two people. That's twenty four dollars, and which is much better than the. $18 you would have for selling them separately. And it, here's the key thing. It's great for the customer too. They're actually getting both things that they want and paying less than they would than they than they would normally if they if they paid their optimal amount either way. I don't know. <laughs> go read this post. It's hard to explain in a podcast. But the the key thing to say about bundle economics is that it's a it's it's really a, a such a powerful way to make money because you can make more as a the bundler can make more than they would otherwise, and the end user gets greater consumer benefit than they would otherwise. It's a win-win for both sides. Right. Uh, it's uh, yeah. I think you did a pretty good summari- job summarizing <laughs> it, given how complicated a topic it is. Um, it's it's uh, ironic that they made a whole bunch of money from bundling uh singles together into albums and then they went through this period of everything being torn apart by piracy and now they've eventually ended up back in this place of being able to bundle i mean effectively the entire almost not quite but almost the entirety of all the music that's ever been created which is exactly what you'd imagine the internet should deliver when it comes to content like this you pay three four five bucks a month ten bucks a month and you get access to almost every song ever created it seems it's it's a pretty damn good deal right Right, and you, I mean, it, it sounds amazing, and it really is. You pay a certain amount, and you get all the music in the world, and and literally, that's yeah, and that that's the thing. Bundling is a great deal; it really is. And for the labels, they get more. They get one hundred and twenty dollars per 
user per year, which is way more than they got before. Like even in the days of selling CDs and albums, I think they got something like fifty to sixty dollars a year in, in, in you know inflation adjusted terms mm. from from the average user. Now, right now, their revenue is much less than it was back in the day, particularly in CDs. And who knows if they will ever get back? But in the long run, as streaming continues to to go to more and more people, like this is there there is like it's a growth. It's a real growth opportunity, and it it really does work for for both sides. Well, it's it's also you're turning you're turning your customers into subscribers and subscriber economics. You speak to anyone in the SaaS industry, subscriber economics, particularly if you can keep retention rate up. Which, given the fact that old music is still so valuable to people, subscriber economics are valuable. Retention rate super high. You don't churn lots of customers. They've gone through a lot of pain to get to this place, but it is a in general, the place they're heading to is a pretty attractive place in terms of like the way they're monetizing users now. Right, exactly. Now, well, the obvious retort is that, oh, well, what about the artists? And yeah, it, 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 it's a very fair, it, it, it is an issue. The difference though, and that's why it's really important to sort of look at the structure of things. From a label perspective, because they have a portfolio, as it were, of new artists, upcoming artists, old artists, this idea of bundling them all together is super powerful and super attractive, and it makes sense for them. And because they own all that stuff, they are the ones who are really benefiting economically from streaming, right? I mean, Spotify, who, I'm sure Apple's losing a bunch of money on it. Spotify is losing money. They say mm. they'll be profitable soon. But even when and if Spotify gets profitable, it's they're – it's on the scraps, right? The the labels are have all the economic power in this. Individual artists are theoretic, like it's their commodities. Like they they are just pieces that go into this, and some can break through. And the ones that can break through and form direct relationships with customers, this will be a, a you know, sort of a theme of this. How do you as a content supplier? How do you survive and make money in this world? Those who can establish direct relationship, whether that be selling, actually selling old school albums and making that the only way to get your your thing, or concerts, or mm. you know merchandise, that sort of thing, can make more money. But yes, they, it is much more commoditized than than it was previously. It, that's just sort of the. I mean, it, it's an economic sort of story, but it gets back to the labels have that bundle. They or they have that integration. They have the old songs and the new songs, and that is sort of what let them get to this place where is it as great as it was before? No, but it's it's decent and it has actually potential going forward because their advantage was about more than just distribution. Because once distribution was 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 destroyed, they were, you know, they're sort of screwed. Yeah, that that power um doesn't just extend over the artist too. It's one of the things that I've wondered about as a consumer of streaming music, that that power that the labels have extends over Spotify as well. And if they see this doing super well, I could I could foresee a future in which they start to raise the prices that Spotify has to pay. And either Spotify passes those price rises on, so you end up having to pay more for the music that you stream, or they wear them and it eats into the profitability. Either way, it's not a fantastic place to be in the middle. Right, exactly. Spotify has no no power, and that's exactly what I expect to happen. Because, I mean, Apple Music's there, and real. You know, by and large, it doesn't really matter which one you you go for. I mean, Apple is like trying to get these exclusives, or even if it's only for one week or one month, or it might be. Obviously, they have Taylor Swift, which I know matters to you. 
uh, you uh, know, Apple an incredible uh, amount. <laughs> Anyhow, yeah. So the general, what's interesting about the music market is, is in many respects of all the media industries, the the one industry where the incumbents are arguably in the strongest spot. Again, not saying they're doing as good as they were before. Not saying it's the most profitable business. I mean, there's that, there's not that much money in music, relatively speaking, especially compared to say TV or or movies and stuff like that. But the one sort of incumbents in the best spot is <laughs> actually happens to be the record labels, who have always been the poster child of the people that didn't get the internet and just totally. Totally screwed. And that was the case. But arguably because that was the case, yeah. they ended up in a better position, you know, sort of today going forward. They took the pain and then um, now they're in this position. But what what this what would the discussion we just had also reminded me of and talking of Spotify having no power, and maybe this is a segue in, is is an organization that that perhaps recognized that if it was dependent entirely on other people's content, it was never going to be as successful as it could if it decided to get into content itself. And that is inside the TV industry. And I'm, of course, referring to Netflix. Right. So it's really interesting because you have this, again, we talk about the record levels, the old content and the new content sort of working, working mm. as being integrated together and how that gives the labels power. And the fact there's only three labels also, you know, there's there's de facto collusion when it comes to this this mm-hmm. this sort of thing in part sort of and apple sort of created conditions for that right because apple as a sort of monop- monopsony player made the labels into commodities that had to uh, you know deal on their terms mm-hmm. so in some respects so you already had this industry that had these th- three suppliers that were treated largely the same and once they got into the streaming industry like that structure maintained itself and and it, it, with only three players, like cooperation is much easier in general, right? I mean, this is a, hu- a huge problem in the text area. Like you have <laughs> millions hundreds, and millions yeah. of suppliers. Yeah. Right. So in TV, what's interesting about TV is TV also has the benefits of old and new. Maybe it's maybe less powerful than music, where people will still listen to songs from the '60s and '70s. But the back catalog of TV is at least theoretically valuable. Um, but it wasn't really monetized for TV networks. And along comes this new player that says, hey, you have this huge library of content that you made good money on its first run and maybe some of it got syndicated, but now it's just sitting in your vaults. How about you give it to us and we'll, you know, it, it'll be great for your bottom line, make a few bucks. It was the the insight here around the value of the internet in the same way that the music industry made lots of money off the old library but did it through record stores, which wasn't ideal for the internet. The insight behind Netflix of saying, hey, people, people don't necessarily sit down on a timetable. They sit down and they want to watch something entertaining and that if we can if we can, as you so aptly put it when you talk about this, if we can commoditize time and not make people work to a schedule, just let them pick from a library of TV TV shows and movies that are really, really great no matter when they were made and perhaps even get good at recommending what they'd like based on what they had 
um, what that people have watched in the past was such a keen insight and it was so different to the way that TV industries traditionally, TV executives traditionally thought about things because it had to have, it was go, it was linear time-based programming that had a certain number of channels and a certain number of slots and they just didn't even think that way. But in the same way that having all the music in the world available to listen to whenever you want for a subscription service makes so much sense. Having a whole bunch of really great TV shows and movies that are available and recommended so you can even find things that you want based on what it knows you like and you can watch it anytime you want just makes so much sense. And and they were able to monetize that because they saw that and the, the TV executives did not. Well, it's not not that they saw it and the TV executives did not. It's that because of their sort of orthogonal orientation, what they valued was very different Mm. than what the TV executives Mm. valued. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. not like the – and this is what what made Netflix really sort of disruptive to this sort of industry is because Netflix – at least when Netflix started, they were – they were worried about the size of their library. And I think I've said this on, on the podcast before, but you know, my favorite example, yeah, I just said it a few weeks ago, right? When when Netflix got their original streaming deal with Stars, Stars had eleven thousand movies, but for Stars, the effective number of movies they had at any time was one, right? Because mm-hmm. that was whatever was showing at the time. Whereas for Netflix it was eleven thousand. So because you could pick any, you know, any one that you wanted to. Mm-hmm. And so that meant if you were in a linear TV network, what really mattered to you was what could drive people right now at at any given moment because you were only showing one thing at a time. And so to that, and the old content was not, you had all this old content, but you weren't going to get the sort of volume at any one moment in time on old contents. You were always making new content. You're, you're always trying to draw sort of new people in. Whereas for Netflix, the the calculation was very, very different. They were more concerned with the amount of stuff they could have avail- available. So they were a great friend for the TV networks, right? Because they came in and they're like, the TV networks have all this old content that they're making no money off of. And Netflix is like, hey, this fits with us. We're not we're not going to compete with you for eight p.m. on Thursday. We, you know, again, this is a few years ago. <laughs> you know, we can add basically, and again, and these were all sunk costs. The networks had already spent the money for this for for this content. So when Netflix says we'll pay you X amount of money for all your old TV shows, that was pure profit. It went straight to the bottom line of all these networks. And say what you will about, oh, they're so dumb, they can't see the future, da 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 I'd like to see any listener of this podcast be in that position where you, someone is basically offering to give you millions of dollars to your bottom line, some Silicon Valley startup who you know, sells DVDs or whatever. And I, I, I don't think that many people would say no. Yeah, I, I think this is a... I mean, it's interesting. Beware of friends bearing gifts, right? Whether it's Apple coming and promising <laughs> to compete with piracy for you. And that, I mean, the interesting thing is here is that that um, the the pain that the music industry was feeling at that point in time was obviously a lot greater than, than music and video was when Netflix came along. But they went through that pain and then they came out on the other side and they're probably in a they're in a better place at least than they were back a few years ago. I'm not sure that the same can be said in terms of like the prospects for uh, TV. And part of it is just because it uh, it effectively enabled this 
this giant to emerge. It, and it wasn't a giant initially, but it created this virtuous loop where they suddenly had content, they could start to build up customers, and everything you described with aggregation theory started to kick into gear because all of a sudden they had a basis on which to start uh, to start attracting customers. Uh, you, you're like you said, they weren't competing with them directly, and now they could bring in extra customers and then pass that revenue along to the TV industry. And the TV industry's mm, this is great. Why why would I turn down free money? This this looks fantastic. Right, and we've talked about Netflix multiple times, so we don't need to get get into it again. But I still get emails today from people saying, "Oh, I don't understand why you're both on Netflix. The, the, at any time, the networks can pull all their content from Netflix." And it's like, well, one, they can't really because now they're they're dependent, dependent right. on on yeah these millions of dollars flowing. That again, that goes straight to their bottom line, right? It's like it's like the pure, pure heroine of 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 like cash flow, <laughs> right? So one, they can't. Two, even if they did, it doesn't matter anymore because Netflix's differentiation now and the way they keep their customers, attract new customers, is increasingly built on Netflix owned and controlled and produced content, their original content, right? And you could go back. So it doesn't matter how they got to where they are now. You can't undo the past. Mm. And the key thing is that this was. The reason to understand this is to understand how Netflix got in the position they are today. Mm-hmm. But what got you in the position you are today isn't necessarily what is important for you going forward, right? right. So the fact that Netflix basically took advantage of the studios by having an orthogonal business model and basically giving them things that they that made them happy, money, it doesn't matter that oh you like you can't put the horse back in the barn, right? Yeah, it's it, it's I would describe it like an army marching forward. You can you burn the bridge right as the army's getting there or as they're crossing, it has some effect. But once the army's crossed and it's it, I mean it's I mean that back content still has some value. It's like a supply line right now. But the effect of burning that bridge now the army's in, in different territory, you've you've like missed your chance. They've already gone on, you know? Right, exactly. And, and now they have their own back content, right? Right. Today, what's so fascinating about Netflix is if I sign up for Netflix right now, and I've never been a Netflix subscriber before, it, like all that content that – and this is why Netflix can be so aggressive in investing in content because House of Cards season one is a reason to subscribe to Netflix today just as much as it was a reason to subscribe five years ago, right? In fact – the people getting the best deal from Netflix are the ones who are subscribing tomorrow because yeah. not only are they getting the stuff that Netflix is doing on an ongoing basis, they're getting the entire catalog. Netflix has like, they're approaching like triple digit original series. They're investing $6 billion this coming year in, in original content. Like the, the value proposition of Netflix is getting stronger as time goes on, not weaker. And so you think about it, the marginal customer, right? The, the, the issue with, with saturation is as you get down to like the original people you get for your product, they're the easy people to get. And they're the people who usually have the most consumer surplus, right? They sign up and they're like, wow, you know, what a great deal. I'm getting this. It's worth, you know, to be able to stream. I just like having the access and choosing stuff like I would pay $50 for this and I can only get it for $10 a month. But you get, you go down the sort of demand curve and you get people for whom like, eh, $10 a month. Yeah. I'm not sure if if it's worth it. And in this case, what Netflix is doing is they're increasing the value of what you get for that $10 a month. So that marginal customer, it's actually becoming a more attractive service over time, which is sort of, you know, helping them overcome like their saturation where they ought to be saturated is, their addressable market is increasing is a better way to put it. Their addressable yeah. market is increasing because the value that they're offering 
brings them into the reach of more and more marginal customers. And and just, again, another one of these instances of how the internet makes things work the way they should be, because they own the content and they own the distribution, there are none of these ridiculous sub-licensing deals that traditional content makers go through for each different geography. They can basically switch it on, switch a show on, any show that they've created on anywhere at the world. And they do all at the same time. They just flick a switch and it's on for everybody. And it's a phenomenal way of signing up lots of people. And it's probably a big part of the reason why they're growing so fast internationally as as recently witnessed in their numbers. And that's really important, the international thing, because that means they're comp- it's another way they're competing orthogonally because mm. they can charge less per customer because the number of customers they can potentially reach is is vastly greater. Right. Totally. The the thing that's really interesting, though, about this is this idea that Netflix started with sort of buying up all the old content. Mm. And it's easy to step back and think about the music industry, right? Where arguably the reason why the labels survived is because they kept that sort of integration of old content and new content. Mm. And you and you think about the the TV networks because theoretically they should have been like the record labels where they leverage that going forward and I, I I don't know I think there's something to the fact that the music industry was just in such bad shape right they they were sort of forced into the future far, far more quickly and aggressively than mm. the video industry and part of it is the download file size a big part of it though is you know. Just TV, TV was a great deal. It continued to be a great deal in the internet because there's, there's things about TV. It's not just about distribution. Part of it's distribution. That's a huge part, again, given the, the relative size of the files and all those sorts of things. Like the internet wasn't really competitive for – it took much longer to get to that stage. But you had the bundle economics thing. Cable, and I've maintained this for years, cable's a really good deal for what you get. Like people think about all the channels they pay for and they, they they don't watch, they, oh, it's so unfair. But if you actually think about the average customer watches like something like 15 channels, right? Which is like, oh man, I got 200 channels, I watch 15, it's a terrible deal. No, you're paying, you know, $70 a month once you break out the broadband fees and whatnot for 15 different content sources, none of which if you had to pay a la carte, you'd pay vastly more. The fact that you can do them together, it's a huge, it's a really good deal. And again, not to re-legislate the cable bundle, but the the point is there's so many things about the pay TV, pay TV model that made it into an attractive business so that when the internet came along, it persisted as a good business. But because it persisted as a good business, the time to sort of shift to a new model like music has done was arguably missed, and you had this sort of Netflix come along. Like Netflix, people are like, what's the difference between Netflix and Spotify? The difference is that Netflix has its own inherent value proposition now. They used to be the same. Spotify, Spotify's value proposition is selling other people's stuff, not their own stuff. And so they're sort of captive to their suppliers in a way that Netflix was at one time, but no longer is. I think the point around the pain that music went through and how it led to the place they're at now, whereas video uh, put off the pain and now they're going to feel it, I think that's a really good one. I think there's something else here around 
the creative nature of music versus video as well. Whereas video is a much more it, there's uh, it's it's more of an industry in terms of like creating a show or a movie. You need to bring all these different plays together, and it lends itself well to having an actor doing a central organization. Whereas the music industry and the labels have these relationship with artists and have discovery and so on that I don't think people have. It it lends itself less well to a. And I mean, maybe this is me going, looking back 2020 and Netflix figured it out how to do it for video and no one's figured out how to do it for music. But I think there's something about the nature of the industry inside of inside of video that lends itself better to someone coming back with deep pockets and figuring out how to do it versus music where there's still a lot of intuition and gut still involved. Maybe. I mean, there's there's certainly... Well, just in general, the production of music is mm. much cheaper than than video but i but that that's that's super important we talk about text text is on the extreme right it's trivial to create it but that means it's much easier for competitors to come along in in music it's it's easier to create on your own it's getting ever more easier but still to get awareness and to make people like yes youtube has changed that but the the labels are still still can play a role in getting driving awareness and whatnot and getting deals like especially more when he's made in endorsement deals or like uh, you know soundtracks and all that sort of stuff like there there's still there's still value to be added there that it's harder to get on your own and TV it's all it's it's all the way on the other extreme where yeah it it's really expensive to make this stuff and you need lots of people to do it and you need camera operators and you need light operators and you need directors and you need producers and you need like sound stages and equipment and the barrier to entry is much higher. But again, the, that's another reason why video in the face of the internet in TV in the face of the internet remained so profitable even though theoretically stuff was falling apart because it wasn't just distribution that made TV available industry. It was bundle economics. It was the high cost of entry. It was it was bandwidth. It was all these things in concert that made it, you know, so, so much more impenetrable. And yeah, and it made them not feel the pain for a very long time. I think it's probably worth at this point splitting the industry apart a little bit because I, we've probably focused a little bit on Netflix as being the disruptor here in terms of thinking about thinking about how it is coming apart. But that's only one element of it. And there's a um, there's an article you wrote way back when around the jobs that TV does that I think is fantastic and. I think it's a really good starting point for understanding how how the different uh, legs of the stool have slowly been eaten away at. Right, because the the thing with the, the like the TV bundle is like a bundle of bundles, right? You can get down to the individual channels, but by and large, yeah, what the, this article the Jobs TV does focused on is that I said there are like five jobs TV does. You could quibble with the categories. Maybe there's more, maybe there's less. But the five were it, it kept us informed, like news, uh, provided educational content, like you know History Channel, Discovery Channel. Again, mm. not getting into how good those are, just, just saying. Uh, three, provided a live view of sporting events. Uh, four, told stories with like scripted content and, and things like that. And five, just escapism, like basically like just zoning out or just the TV being on the background, like where mm-hmm. it's it just... It, it, Especially before you know, before we had smartphones, like 
that was the most alluring way to sort of waste time for the vast majority of people, and, and Frank, frankly, still is. The, and so each of these, so if you think about this, within each of these, there was sort of their own bundle, right? Within sports, there's like the, there's ESPN, there's there's uh, the, the broadcast networks, they have like the NFL, there's ESPN News, there's Fox Sports, like whatever. But like big picture, the what made cable so compelling and the pay TV so compelling is you could pay one price and you could get all these jobs delivered for you as a set. And again, maybe you wouldn't pay as much for any particular one of these jobs as you would for another. But when you consider you were getting all these jobs delivered for one, relatively speaking, low monthly price, it was a good deal and very compelling and was a win for consumers. It was a win for for the suppliers. The issue is that Netflix, for example, is about that told stories aspect, right? And that's been something that, that has been very stale for TV. But it, all these parts are being impacted by the internet. I mean, the keep us informed one is the most obvious one. Like, who gets their news from TV? Like, people over 70, like, quite mm-hmm. literally. Like, young, no one gets their news from TV. No young people get their news from TV. They get it from the internet. The internet did, took that job away from TV. But that's okay for TV. They still had four other jobs. Oh, what about providing educational content? Yeah, the internet's better at that too. You know, it, whether it be web pages, whether it be YouTube, like the number of like instructional content on YouTube is unbelievable. Like you can get a tutorial video about anything. <laughs> like it, it, it's it's way better. It's better done. It's more timely. It's more relevant. It's easier to find because of search. You're not bound to a, a, a programming schedule. It, it, that job's done. Oh, but that's okay. We still have some other jobs. But the point is, you're you're peeling away these jobs, and when you start peeling away jobs, that bundle is getting less and less attractive. And that's exactly what's been happening, right? Like you start to see, you. you I mean, and people have been calling the, de- the like calling the demise of this for so long on the basis of seeing where this is going. And I, I think the observation is fair. I don't think anyone would argue with it. I think that the trick as an analyst is really not just saying this is going to happen, but also picking the timing. And what has been remarkable has been in the face of all these assaults and literally almost every one of the legs of the stool, with the exception perhaps of live sports, have been assaulted so heavily by the internet, whether it's Netflix, YouTube, whatever it is. It's remarkable how well it's stood up in the face of these attacks for as long as it has. Right. The context, just to back up, the context in which I wrote the Jobs TV does, this was 2013. And I was actually writing against those people who are insistent that the TV industry was done and that cord cutting was 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 going to be be dominant. And I've maintained that position for, for a long time. Again, to your point, in the lo- very long run, is it inevitable that that we, we do streaming and everything's on demand and whatnot? Of course it is, right? It's one of those things like we talked about this last week, right? There's, there's a logic to the way things ought to be that you know that it's going to be, right? Mm-hmm. And the, the floor is going to drop out at some point. But pure inertia and the status quo can carry you for a really, really long way. <laughs> AOL and, still has subscribers, you know that? <laughs> well, I mean, think about, like, we talk about this all kinds of stuff. We talk about this in the context of, like, of transportation and cars right. and, and, like, all sorts of things 
will st- or like shopping, right? The fact that I'm going to, you know, get in my car and drive to the store to get toilet paper in the in the age of Amazon doesn't really make sense, but a ton of people still do it. Like to change the way people live their lives takes time, right? right. And and so when I wrote this piece, my entire point of the piece is that this is an industry that is much stronger than it seems, not because of the underlying logic. Yes, the underlying logic has changed. The internet has changed things. But because there's all these things that are intertwined and tied together to make this much stronger than people think. And so, yeah, there are people who have been saying, oh, the court's cutting, right? There's this Wall Street analyst I'm thinking of in particular who's been like on this and and is you know been a big critic of mine on this point. But the problem is this guy's been saying for 15 years that the TV industry is in trouble, right? And in 15 years, the stock of all those media companies has doubled or tripled in value. So when and if this guy ends up being right, like he, he, he can pat himself on the back. And meanwhile, everyone who waited is three or four times richer because they got the timing better, right? right? Like there's no value in getting it. it yeah. So yeah, so that that's that, – so, that was my context then. And the reason why I wrote this now, and it, again, it makes me nervous because I'm ner- I don't, it's hard to get this timing right. It really is. And it's easy for me to sit and criticize you know, this guy for, for preaching this from the rooftops. But those three stool, those three legs that were remaining, sporting events, told stories, and escapism, what's interesting is the way those have s- rapidly declined in just three years. So we'll leave outside sports for a second, but the storytelling is really – it's a Netflix thing and along with Amazon and Prime Video in particular. But really the way Netflix is is taking over this, this category and, and not just taking it over in that they're a competitor but exerting power over the industry where they can walk in and they can outbid anyone and they do and they're getting the choice of what they want to do. And, and they're making everyone else weaker by virtue of mm. – their power and that right. power derives from the customers is aggregation theory because they have the users, they have power over suppliers and you're starting to see that cycle sort of kick in. There's this, we'll put it in the show notes. I've linked to it a few times, linked to it in this article, this story in the Hollywood reporter. That was one of the most gratifying stories that I've read in sort of an industry trade publication because it basically said everyone's scared to death of Netflix because of the power they're accumulating. I'm like, yep, that's what I, that's exactly what, what I predicted and it's happening. And so that that one's starting that one's starting to look really really shaky. If all you care about is compelling scripted shows, like the reason to have a cable bundle is falling through the floor. I think that's right. And watching this virtuous cycle for Netflix is uh, is now remarkable in terms of how it's growing. That being said, it doesn't have it all to itself. There's an orthogonal business model um, that Amazon has in terms of uh, using video to attract people to Prime. And that's something that Netflix is going to have to keep an eye on in terms of making sure it wins this market. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, Amazon is Netflix's biggest threat for that exact reason alone. Like there's always a bigger fish, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> but well, that's why it's so important. They're building up their own library and, and content has to be indispensable. But no, it, it, it's – but for now, I think in the context of this discussion, Amazon and Netflix are jointly sort of attacking this industry on this job, right? And what's interesting is it's just this job. Netflix isn't investing in news. They're not investing in sports. And this is like the sports one's really interesting. Like Reed Hastings has been very clear Netflix is not interested in sports. And if you think about it, it's obvious why. 
Be- why is sports so valuable to the pay TV bundle? Because sports is valuable it's, when it's, it's not, live. Right. It's not, it's not subject to commoditization of time, which is basically the, the way that Netflix has managed to make money. Like That's the core difference between them and what they surpass before them. Right, and so it, it, like eighty-eight of the most watched like shows last year were sports events, like it, it, and because you have to watch it live, it, it, it's not it just the value falls through the floor, and it's like the maximization of the model based on on linear on time. <laughs> to your point, right? Whereas Netflix, the whole point of the model is that they don't care about time, so of course they're not interested in sports. So you have networks spending a huge amount of their budget to buy sports rights. And Netflix can come along, and Netflix values the other stuff much more. So not only are they have increased market power by having the customers and, and the cash that gives them and the debt that they raise because they're very much they're they're buying content for the customers of tomorrow, which is why everyone yes. you know watches their subscribers so closely. But they're also they value it more. They care more about this stuff because it's core to their business. What is core to TV's business? What's the most core, most important is something that Netflix doesn't even care about. So even if you and I have the same budget, if you have $100 and I have $100, but I have to spend $50 on this one thing because it's so important to me and you don't, that means for everything else, you have a $50 advantage, right? Mm. I mean, it's leaving the TV networks. If that ends up being the one thing that they rely on, it leaves them in an increasingly precarious position, kind of similar to what Spotify and Apple Music find themselves, the position Apple Music and Spotify find themselves in, because Netflix's content library has value for the customers of tomorrow, whereas the the live sporting events are only valuable to the customers who continue to subscribe. And the suppliers of that content are going to recognize that that and they are going to keep pushing the price up to the maximum amount these that the networks are willing to pay and they will pay right up to the amount because they need to keep these subscribers and it leaves them increasingly squeezed while Netflix focuses on content that has this this the economics look entirely different it 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 ends it continues to monetize as more and more customers come on right exactly because Netflix by looking at it because there's a mismatch between the time frame when Netflix values content versus like say the creators mm. right N- Netflix can can pay what the creators feel is a fair amount and make a profit because their 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 time frame is different right right Where, whereas sports because the time frame is is there, there isn't that back catalog benefit it's much harder to value it and and so you know generally speaking the reality is that most sports leagues are are pretty have traditionally been bad at business so almost every sports rights deal that has been signed particularly sale by like ESPN has turned out to be a phenomenal deal. Uh, but the NFL, I think in particular has really gotten much more aggressive about squeezing ESPN in particular, right? They give them bad games. They charge them a ton of money. They have the, they have the worst and, and ESPN is, is paying more than the other network in part because ESPN needs like the access to highlights and clips and all that sort of stuff for, for their sports show. But you're seeing this where this, where the supplier is exerting more and more power on, on the middleman. And it's first on ESPN because ESPN has, has few, has less degrees of freedom because they're, they're only sports, right? When it comes to the broadcast networks, for example, like, like CBS or NBC buying the NFL, they actually don't make very much money in the NFL at all. Like they're even though they're the most watched content, 
and they sell can charge the most for ads. They pay so much for it, they barely cover it. But it's worth it to them because they can promote all their other content, right? And so running all those promos, oh, this new show on CBS, oh, stay after the game and watch this, or this guest is on our talk show, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. That is where they actually end up making the money is on the ancillary stuff. And, and that's fine. It ends up being a fair relationship where they can make money by virtue of having a, a different business model than, say, the NFL. But once your business models become identical, then the one with the power is going to get it. The music analogy is a great one. Like the, the labels are interested in streaming. If Spotify wants to stream for them, it's basically they're doing the same business model but who has the power in that relationship? Like if Spotify wants to do all the dirty work of actually signing up customers and all that sort of stuff. Apple wants to do it too, and they want to compete against each other. Great for us. We own we we own the choke point, right? Which is the content, right? Yeah, we're we're getting a little all, all over the place. But I think the, the 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 broader point is this, and this is the the big takeaway. You we have these jobs, right? Being informed that's been pilled away by the by the internet. Probably Google is sort of the dominant one here, right? If you want to know something, you go to Google and search. It was the first one to go. I and I re, I think I remember I would. I would hazard to say that the point at which it became clear to me that this had been peeled away was um, way back when, when 9-11 happened. And my first reaction was not to turn on the television. It was to get on the internet and what has just happened. Yeah, yeah, for for sure. The edu- educational content is gone. It's been peeled away. Again, I think YouTube is, is probably the most dominant one here. The storytelling, Netflix is is has a, a, a this advantage, this inherent structural advantage mm. that I expect to continue to compound on top of itself. Uh, we, sorry, number five we barely talked about escapism, but same thing here. Like you can talk about the competition between Facebook and Snapchat, but just like you can Netflix and Amazon, but Facebook and Snapchat taken as a whole, it's, like it's dominate gonna, boredom. Oh yeah, it's gonna eat them alive. Like you just people have people had a spare moment ten minutes ago or wanted something to do and wanted to be mindless. They turn on the the they turn on the television now. People without like you have five spare seconds and you watch someone pull out their phone and load up Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat and just start scrolling through their feeds. Right, exactly. And TV has always been a better advertising vehicle, even in the face of the loss of attention, in part because I think Facebook – and I, I got into this in the article. It's a bit of a side note, but it's something I've been wanting to to express for a while. Facebook got too focused on on targeting and, and like what are their advantages. Like the, face, the real thing Facebook has is scale. They can walk up to a marketer and say, you can do one ad buy and reach you know a billion people, right? Like that's – that's all they if you're a brand marketer your your advertising is so far removed from the purchase that one it's almost impossible to track facebook's been trying for years to build this mm. out we've talked about it on, on this podcast but by and large like if it's not worth the effort because it's not worth you don't want to spend a lot of your time reaching 100 people when only 4 of them are going to buy right if it's google and you can reach six people of which four of them will buy, by all means, I'll spend a lot of money and a lot of time trying to do that, right? But when you're way at the very top of the funnel, it's more about efficiency of spend than anything, right? And Facebook has not been focused on that until recently. And so I think they'll start getting that money, and Snapchat is the same thing. But the broader point is that 
that's a more of a function of when's the four, when are people going to realize that the four fell out from under them. Right. The idea that TV matters for boredom relative to Facebook or Snapchat, that attention shift has happened. It's already happened. It's the only question is when does it actually follow through in the financials? Right, and sometimes that's delayed, but it's just an inevitability at this point in time. Right, and so all that's left is sports. And to your point, like I don't think the leagues will, the various sports leagues will ever go direct. In part because the vast majority of sports customers like multiple sports, so there will always be a sort of bundle argument to have to have a, a central player. But it may just end up being the paid TV bundle is just a sports bundle. If you like sports, you subscribe to paid TV, and if you don't, you don't. And though. Like ESPN, maybe they charge like six fifty today. Maybe they'll end up charging like fifteen dollars or twenty dollars in the future. But it, it's it's all about maximizing revenue from a much smaller customer base, right? And I I think that is one of the things that has been missed in terms of talking about cord cutting. I think there are folks that that are willing to give up sports, and that has just made it. If you weren't into sports, it made it that much easier to just jump off the paid TV bandwagon so much sooner. Whereas it's a big, I mean, it's obviously just a big part of the reason it's held up for so long because this content, you need to get it now. There's only a limited way in which you can do it. And you're if you're into sports, you're willing to pay a lot typically to make sure you can keep um you can keep watching it. And you're right. It's the thing that's been gluing this all together for as long as it has. Right. And it will for it will for the foreseeable future. I mean, you'd be like, oh, why doesn't Amazon go buy sports rights? Well, because ESPN bought up all the sports rights for the next 10 years, like until like mm-hmm. 2025, right? And people criticize ESPN for doing that. It's the smartest thing they've done by far. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it, like, because sports are – there's only one, and it only happens at one time, right? It, so it's the best insurance kind of going forward – but the broader point is this. TV, when you think about why media survived, why different types of media handled the internet differently, text had no defense outside of distribution. So when the distribution went away, the distribution advantage, it fell apart, right? M- music had the distribution advantage, but they also had this other sort of integration of the back catalog and new music. And that is why, because they had something independent of the internet, they were able to shift forward into this model that makes a lot of sense for the integration they have. And they are still reaping profits and will continue to reap profits. Less than before, sure. But you could see a future where the music industry actually gets back to the revenue levels that they had before, right? right? This is a growth. It's a growth opportunity. It's crazy. Yeah. Sorry. Go it's ahead. crazy to think about, right? <laughs> no, I know. Particularly, the, right. The, the, the pain that they were going through after, after uh, like piracy and, and Spotify and all these things. And then iTunes came out and it was clear that Apple had an ortho- orthogonal model of like, we're going to make money off the hardware and we're basically just going to commoditize our suppliers to get people on board. And the, ex- the extent with, pir- which- with piracy giving a push. Yeah, right. And the extent to which they've got it to the point that they have now where actually the streaming services are effectively commoditized and the most valuable thing they have control over and uh, they're going to potentially get back to where they were before. It's crazy that it's evolved this way. I, I mean, I again, I wouldn't have expected them to be to be in the position that they're in, where it's like you can see a light at the end of the tunnel. Well, hold on, hold on to that thought because it's, it's it's really important because you move on to video, right? TV yeah. in particular, and TV had TV w- was such a brilliant business because it it wasn't just about distribution. 
It was also about the economic logic of bundling. It was also about advertising and reaching people at scale. It was also about you know being live and sports and all. Like there were so many things that went into the pay TV bundle, which is why I've maintained for a long time that this is a much stronger business than these people saying it's it's going down the toilet tomorrow have have maintained. Mm. But this is the problem with really strong, integrated, multifaceted businesses is that all the parts of that business are under threat. And the consistent part of that threat is the internet, right? It's different. It might be YouTube, might be Google, might be Facebook, might be Snapchat, might be all these sorts of things. But the consistent part there, it might be Netflix, it's the internet. And the the issue is that all, like the whole thing, it's two parts. One, the whole thing is under threat at the same time in all sorts of different pressure points, which means it will stay really, really strong until it isn't, right? It's like the oak tree versus the reed in the wind, right? The oak tree stands up against the wind until it doesn't, and then it's totally destroyed, right? Mm-hmm. The reed bends in the wind all the time, but it, it, no matter how strong the wind is, it, it, it sort of maintains itself. TV is is the oak tree, and it stayed strong. It might stay strong for another five, ten years. It's hard to say for sure, but we're getting at the point that wind is getting so strong, and it's it is hitting every single part of that. And when it goes, it's 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 going to go. And when it goes, it's going to be too late. Like the music industry ended up in better shape because through no choice of their own, through no <laughs> credit to them, they took their medicine and shifted to a business model of the future when there was still time to do so. And I don't think, I, I think the TV industry, the, the biggest hope is how long they can last because when it comes time to shift, it's going to, it's going to break and it's going to be Netflix that wins and it's going to be Amazon that wins, it'll be Facebook and Snapchat that wins. And there might be a rump around sports, but that's all that's going to be left. You know, it's reminding me of this quote, and I can't remember who made it, but it it goes something along the lines of uh, the history of business and and strategy in business is basically the bundling and unbundling of various goods. Yeah, Jim Barnsdale, the best way to make money in business is to bundle or unbundle. Exactly. There's there's, there's two strategies in business, bundling and unbundling. Uh, and and they oscillate between each other and the and another another like another key insight i had out here was uh there was talk about like you want to find a good business model is look at what um craigslist is doing pick a vertical and pull it off and this notion that that these 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 bundles form and then they unform or people attack various elements of it and then it rebundles again like what we see like the the music industry bundling the new and the old music together in a way that becomes defensive again until at some point in the future it doesn't and the forces continue to shape and oscillate in and out like this it's fascinating to watch it, it is and and it's it's a i think a broader lesson worth sort of remembering right like why is it like apple was almost died in the pc era right but in part because they had nothing sort of locking them in they were more free to sort of move to the next thing you know what I mean? Whereas like Windows was – they were so intertwined with the PC and it was such – we talked about it a few weeks ago. It was an unbelievable business model. They had all multiple pieces all over the place all tied together in this gnarly knot that was impenetrable, mm. right? But when the broader context changed around the PC, they were screwed because they were too – their business model was too good to change, right? And, and now today, like Apple with the iPhone – 
is an nice. unbelievable business model, right? But that's the, the danger is if we do come to a paradigm shift, can they change? Google with desktop search and clicking on those links is an unbelievable business model. But when we shift to a new paradigm, can they can they shift? The history of business is times undefeated, right? When things right. change, companies change, the, the leaders change. And this is why. It's because the better you are in one paradigm, almost by definition, the worse you will be in the next. Not and everyone says, oh, it's so obvious they have all these resources. No. Right? They can No, the resources are a detriment. Uh, it, it and you get you get locked in. You view the lens of, like the success. You, I, you, I think you said it last week. Like you view the world through the lens of your success. And if you and in the same way that the there's this curse of success, there's a I can never say this word correctly. Corollary, corollary, corollary. Corollary. I want to mark you. this moment. This, this is this might be the first time in my life where I knew how to pronounce a word and someone else did it. Usually, I'm the yeah. one butchering the pronunciation. No, no, no. It's always me. But it's it's the blessing of failure. Like the the music industry. I mean, Apple benefited from this with the with the PC to the iPhone, and now they're suffering as a result. Amazon benefited from. Well, it they're because, not suffering yet. You can well. It, it, I mean, theoretically. Their financials aren't, but it, it it looks to be they look to be in a similar position to what Microsoft was in as the as the um, the corner turned on the PC and Amazon benefited from it as a result of the phone and then looking at uh, being able to view the house with like a clean slate, not necessarily needing to make the phone the center of everything, and it allowed them to build the Echo. And then the music industry they they took their medicine and it, it was in I. I think integral to them getting to this point where you can actually see a path to them being back to where they were pre-internet piracy. And then you've got the video industry who hasn't taken the medicine, who saw this friend of Netflix bearing gifts and decided to take it because it was pure profit. And now it's, it's, it's a dark hole that I suspect they're going to find themselves in with, with no clear way out. Anyhow, yes, we are quite long already, so I think we need to we need to cut, cut ourselves off there. Our thanks to Mailchimp once again for sponsoring this this episode of Exponent, and I will talk to you next week. Sounds good, mate. All right, bye bye. See ya. <laughs>